Danke. Danke, 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 no. danke, Stop saying donke. Oh, hey, Shrek. How's it going? Danke, 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 You're being danke, irritating. Danke. Danke, danke, no. danke. The humans in the first Toy Story movie look just, just horrifying. In actuality, everything is a bit off, but human brains are specifically calibrated to recognize what people look like and don't look like. Evolutionarily, we don't need to recognize if there's something wrong with a lamp, but for human-looking things, there's this phenomenon known as the uncanny valley. Essentially, the more that something resembles a human, the more we like it. For example, put some googly eyes on a toaster. We gobble that stuff up. Until the resemblance to a human becomes too strong and yet not quite good enough, and then the likability plummets. Think zombies or those weird Japanese robots that are trying to look like people. This is why computer animated films have tended to do stylized characters with totally cartoony proportions. Or you do like Wally and just jam in some actual footage of Fred Willard, who is sort of a stylized human. Now at this point, computer animated films have pretty much figured this stuff all out and are a whole lot more commonplace and mundane than hand-drawn animation. But in the misty pre-9-11 days of 2001, there was still space in the cultural consciousness to be impressed by computer animation. And in that context, Shrek's animation really did impress. The trees looked like trees, the boulders looked like nice boulders, and Lord Farquaad really looked like Mike Eisner. And here, the uncanny valley works in the film's favor. While all the quote-unquote normal-looking human characters are a bit off-putting, the weird, deformed ogre Shrek is completely lovable. Lovable enough to make way too many sequels. And while this likability might undermine the central message a bit about not judging a book by its cover, it did forever change the landscape of computer animation. If you don't believe me, just Google DreamWorks Eyebrow. They always do that face with the raised eyebrow. As if to say, we're not your dad's Pixar. We're a bit more naughty. Hello and welcome to the Wireless Game Adapter Podcast. I'm your host, Oren Bishop. This is the show where we take things that are not games and figure out how they might be turned into games. In part one, we do an examination of this franchise that was so hip and fresh once upon a time. Then we wade around the swamp of existing licensed Shrek games, till part three where we will quest for some games that are not based on Shrek but embody the ogre's heroic spirit, and in the last part, we earn our happily ever after by inventing the perfect Shrek-licensed game. Because I'm no one's messenger boy, okay? I'm a delivery boy. Part 1. Crossing, Crossing the Threshold, the threshold. Once upon a time, 
a beautiful princess was locked away in the tallest tower, guarded by a fearsome dragon, until one day a brave knight faced the challenge, bested the dragon, and rescued the princess. And so, saved by true love's kiss, together they lived happily ever after. Also, the knight's steed was definitely not a talking donkey. I'm not sure if I mentioned that. To properly talk about Shrek, I need to talk about four other terms. Parody, pastiche, deconstruction, and satire. Now, people tend to use a lot of these words interchangeably in various ways, and there certainly is a lot of overlap between them. But I'm going to try to break down my understanding of the common definitions of each so that we can discuss this Mike Myers cartoon, because I'm a lunatic. Now, first of all, pastiche is basically just using a lot of references to homage something else. For example, Star Wars is a pastiche of old Flash Gordon serials. Now, a pastiche may mix up some of the elements or present them in a different way. In fact, it almost certainly will, but not with the specific intention of criticizing the genre or subverting it necessarily. Now, a deconstruction, on the other hand, is a fairly broad term that encompasses a lot of different types of things. A deconstruction could be a comedic look at something, or a more horror-oriented look, or just something that somehow subverts the initial genre. For example, Watchmen is a deconstruction of the superhero genre, because it says, wait, what would superheroes in real history actually be like? See also, to a lesser degree, Christopher Nolan's Batman films, particularly The Dark Knight. Now, a parody is something that is specifically making fun of something else. For example, Austin Powers is a parody of the spy genre, and Blazing Saddles is a parody of the cowboy western. Parody is sort of like a subset of deconstructionism because it's specifically trying to take the original genre and make it humorous to point out strange or illogical elements. The two examples I listed use a modern lens and sensibility to look at the racism and sexism existing in the initial works, deriving humor from genre expectations. And finally, a satire is made not to critique a genre or the work on which it's based, but more specifically to critique something wider, to make a social or political point through the use of genre trappings. For example, Dr. Strangelove is a satire of Cold War politics more than it is a parody of the war or political thriller genre. Now, it certainly is possible for a work to do both satire and parody comedy. Blazing Saddles in particular, I would say, dips its toe into satire because a lot of it is a critique of racism under the guise of being a Western. More so than being interested in critiquing racist elements within Westerns as a genre. Now, Shrek is definitely a parody, which makes it also a deconstruction. It parodies old fairy tales, but it also parodies various contemporary pop culture and derives a lot of its humor from the juxtaposition between the two. And there's a bit of satire on Disney and Hollywood thrown in for good measure. Jokes aimed at the industry and not just their works. Now, one of the pitfalls of parody 
is that if you're parodying something and that something ceases to exist in the popular consciousness or loses its original context, suddenly the jokes feel very dated or don't make any sense at all. Shallow parody can have some of the shortest shelf life in comedy. However, parody can avoid this fate if the jokes are good enough on their own merit or if they draw on things with more staying power. The 1980 film Airplane is a parody of the 1975 film Airport and, more broadly speaking, a parody of the entire disaster genre. But although the disaster genre basically doesn't exist as it once did and nobody remembers the film Airport, Airplane is still well regarded and hilarious because the jokes stand up on their own. On the other hand, you can find a whole bunch of jokes from the early 2000s about that one scene from The Matrix or Gollum doing a weird voice that don't really stand the test of time. We remember those things, but the zeitgeist has moved on. And also, reminding people that something exists isn't a very good joke on its own. Rewatching Shrek and Shrek 2 today, and I'll argue Shrek 2 is in fact one of the few superior sequels, the jokes are hit and miss. Some of the parody holds up, some of it doesn't really make sense anymore, and some of it feels so incredibly dated that it actually becomes funny again. And because it's all hung on a satisfying central narrative and a lot of the parody is of old fairy tales that are never really going to go away, the whole enterprise, at least of the first two films, sort of ages like a fine cheese. Like Austin Powers in Blazing Saddles, Shrek takes a modern sensibility and applies it to the past, in this case to critique gender roles in fairy tales, and the conflation of beauty with heroism, and ugliness with villainy. And to help make this latter point, it uses a few tricks. As discussed previously, it uses the uncanny valley to its advantage, making the weirder looking characters actually a lot more appealing. As well, like Disney's Gaston, which, while supposedly drawn to be handsome, actually shares a number of more angular features with Disney's traditional villains, just so you're not confused, Shrek's Prince Charming, for example, is presented to supposedly be an attractive human, but is also coded gay, common media shorthand for villainy, and shares a number of features with traditionally villainous characters. Like the movie's visuals are trying to whisper to us, Hey, this guy's really attractive, but he's secretly not. This is maybe not as admirable as actually making a movie where the villains are intended to be attractive and the heroes are legitimately intended to be ugly, but it's better than nothing. See, media is like an onion. It has layers. And if you leave it out in the sun, it starts to go brown and sprout little white hairs. Part 2. The Road of Trials. So it's probably best to start off by saying that there are a lot of bad Shrek games. Like, a swamp of Shrek games is probably a fairly good collective noun. There are at least a couple partial exceptions to this rule though. Some of the video games are competent, and outside of your usual Unos and Monopolies, there's a couple of Shrek board games that, while not good games, are at least not horrible. 
Road to Royalty is your expected roll and move game, but it throws in some action cards to mess with opponents and it's got some cool minis. And the Twisted Fairy Tale game asks players to act out stuff like Donkey's voice, which could be really irritating, but hey. Endlessly quoting lines and jokes into the ground does capture that important element of the franchise. In terms of video games, Shrek 2 is a decent game where you run around beating up enemies and solving simple puzzles, and the Game Boy Advance version is even decent. This is notable because not all handheld versions of the Shrek license deserve this label of not a garbage fire. For example, Swamp Cart Speedway came out in 2002, yet it resembles a game from the 1980s. And not in a good nostalgic way. Although I do applaud the thematic choice that they made to record all the game's audio using an onion. But although the sprites in this game resemble an ogre's earwax smeared onto the screen, they do somehow manage to surpass the game that came out a year earlier, Shrek Fairy Tale Freakdown. A one-on-one -on -one fighting game that seems to misunderstand everything that makes fighting games appealing. None of this game's horrendous sprites are quite as baffling, though, as the final boss, which is the dragon, but shrunk down to the size of a regular human. I do not exaggerate when I say that I could very likely both code and animate a game superior to Fairy Tale Freakdown, and I should not be trusted to code or animate anything. And then we get to 2002's Nintendo GameCube title, Shrek Extra Large, which is just transcendent. Shrek isn't voiced in this game, but he is given a face, which is just terrible to behold, and his attacks consist of farting and burping fire. There's also a cheat code to make Shrek pink for some reason, if you're so inclined. Everything about this game is just so bizarre and terrible that I love it. 10 out of 10. Part 3 Transformation problem with the endless Shrek sequels and games, except for Extra Large of course, is that they are essentially a photocopy of a photocopy. The original Shrek is aping concepts from classic fairy tales, and then when you take that parody and copy it, you end up with something pretty toothless. But I view the idea of a Shrek game as an opportunity. The Shrek movies made a big show of aping and making fun of popular movies. So, if you're going to make a game, why not make it a parody of other games? South Park The Stick of Truth, Far Cry Blood Diamond, and the 2013 Deadpool game get a lot of mileage out of making fun of video game tropes. Not just through a barrage of references, but by subverting the expectations conditioned into players by different game genres. And in terms of exploring a bizarre and varied world brimming with interesting and entertaining characters, look no further than Psychonauts for your inspiration. 
In fact, a number of 3D platformer collectathons did a good job of the wacky worlds and fun self-aware humor such as Banjo-Kazooie, and Conker's Bad Fur Day managed to pull off both the scatological humor and the movie references without feeling tired, although you might want to not go quite that far. Nobody needs to hear Shrek singing about his great mighty poo. Part 4, The Elixir. To go back to the breakdown we had earlier in the episode, the perfect Shrek game needs to be operating on three levels. You do your surface level parody of other games. For example, Shrek has to go on a quest and suddenly he finds himself in a Legend of Zelda type adventure, or throwing barrels at street gangs, or surly Brooklyn plumbers, or hunkered down in first person in a combat section that doesn't have any guns in it but feels suspiciously like Call of Duty. Maybe you're having a food fight in the Gumdrop Kingdom or something. Then you got your L.A. Noir segment where you need to figure out if the suspect is lying, but the suspect is Pinocchio and it's very easy. Then beyond this surface level jokey parody, you want to be doing some actual deconstruction, drawing humor from the clash between players' expectations of these genres and reality, or clashes with the established rules of the Shrek extended universe. For example, maybe when you pause the game, Donkey just keeps talking and Shrek says, Donkey, the game is paused. You're not supposed to be talking now. Or the Princess Peach stand-in is horrified by you, refuses to help you, and runs away with Bowser. And of course, the invading alien horde turns out to be adorable and misunderstood. I mean, it's not exactly Shakespeare, but that kind of joke basically writes itself. Then beyond this parody and deconstruction layer, you've got the satire layer where we skewer various companies by, for example, talking about their monetization policies or their DRM, which is particularly apropos because as of this recording, EA is making games for Disney. So you have your Lord Farquaad type character come in and calmly explain why you're not allowed to play as the dragon character in this level until you give them $9.99. But if you can find Merlin, perhaps he can manipulate time so that you don't have to wait 93 hours for your farming minigame to generate that bushel of cherries you need. The game also really shouldn't focus on combat. Shrek isn't about beating people up, it's about getting into all kinds of weird and wacky situations and set pieces. Now of course it is harder to make a whole bunch of different types of gameplay that are compelling, but I think they can all be fairly thin, since really you're here for the characters, the jokes, and the general vibe. The different types of gameplay just need to be non-painful and not so frustratingly difficult that they ruin the humor. Except of course in levels where that is the joke, like the Dark Souls section. Hey, if Mario can do it, it's about time we got some Shrek Souls. Somebody once told me you were listening to the Wireless Game Adapter Podcast, hosted by me, Oren Bishop, not the sharpest tool in the shed. Check out Steampunk Rally and other great games at roxley.com. 
Music for this episode hit the ground running from Incompetech.com. You heard Ascending the Veil, Snow Queen, and Village Consort, all by rock star Kevin McLeod. Theme music is Chibi Ninja by all-star Eric Skiff. Break the Mold by rating and subscribing on iTunes or Google Play Music, and tell me what you want adapted next at orinbishop.wixsite.com slash gamedesign. And follow me on facebook.com slash orinbishopgames. Tell someone you know about this podcast, such as The Muffin Man. Just don't take my gumdrop buttons! They lived happily ever after.